So for this podcast, I've been really lucky to team with an extraordinary group of people that help bring this show to life. There's a lot of research, interviews, we're working all day and all night, and the folks at ZipRecruiter have been huge supporters of the show. I'm always working on a few projects at once, and I know that hiring is really hard. I personally couldn't be more excited that what really happened is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. It uses this approach, I call it the Moneyball approach, where they use a combination of algorithms and professionals to match right people for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And right now, only using our code, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. One more time to try it for free, totally free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to ZipRecruiter.com and thank all of you for your support. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Britney Spears was arguably the most popular musician for nearly a decade. At 17 years old in 1999, her first single, Baby One More Time, was the top-selling song of the year in the United States. Her second album, which came out only a year later, is the best-selling album by a teenager. Then, a year later, she opened the MTV Music Video Awards by taking off a suit and hat to show off a flesh-toned sparkling bra and matching pants underneath. It may seem like not such a big deal, but at the time, it most certainly was. Britney was everywhere. People were either watching her, listening to her, or talking about her. But about 10 years later, on February 16th, 2007, the Britney mystique and empire all seemed to come crashing down. Britney went to a hair salon and shaved her head. The long blonde hair, gone. When somebody at the salon offered to cut Britney's hair for her, Britney responded with, I've had enough people touching me. Her hair, left on the floor, was posted on eBay and bidding reached about $1 million before the auction was taken down because the hair couldn't be authenticated. Days later, she began attacking paparazzi with a baseball bat and smashed the car of her ex-husband, Kevin Federline. She began wearing wigs. Videos surfaced of her yelling at paparazzi in accents that people couldn't understand. People and the press ate it up. The perfect girl was finally breaking down. We had a hunch it was all a gimmick, and now the real person was finally revealing herself. And for some reason, it was an itch that everyone was dying to scratch. Over the course of about a year, she gets a divorce, checks into and then out of and then back into rehab, is charged with two counts of a hit and run, accused of child abuse and drug abuse, is placed on lockdown in a psych ward, and according to reports, nearly dies. The Associated Press admits that they have prepared an obituary because, quote, we are not wishing it, but if Britney passed away, it's easily one of the biggest stories in a long time. When reminding myself of this story and looking at old videos on YouTube of Britney being harassed by the paparazzi, I came across one that was towards the end of her roller coaster 2007 year. Britney is with her boyfriend at the time, Adnan Ghalib. Adnan is British and not famous like some of her ex-boyfriends, namely Justin Timberlake. The two have been driving around Los Angeles and, of course, being followed by the paparazzi. At this moment in time, they are looking for a bathroom. They stop at a Walgreens and begin demanding a bathroom for Britney to use. When the paparazzi yell questions, Spears responds in a British accent for reasons that I forget because it seems trivial compared to the ensuing madness. As I'm watching, I realize the 20 paparazzi maybe with the exception of one or two, are all men. All men. They are also yelling for someone at Walgreens to open the door for Britney to use the bathroom. It's a fine balance they play. It seems they want to help Britney here and there. Perhaps the thinking is, help her get into a bathroom, maybe she won't run us over next time we're violating her space. Turns out it's much worse. They're hoping to get pictures of her in the bathroom. And they come close. A Walgreens employee gets a bathroom to open, although ironically, it's the men's bathroom. 
Adnan, the boyfriend, stops the paparazzi from taking photos of her inside. As the door closes, he stands in the hallway, and the 20 or so paparazzi now just take photos of him, asking random questions. He grins, leans against the wall, and waits. It seems like Adnan is pretty friendly with the guys taking photos. They seem to have a shorthand. He also seems calm given the commotion and rolls his eyes at many of the questions. I'm starting to think maybe he's famous. I'm not a pop culture expert and perhaps he's used to this lifestyle. But then I hear a question. Something like, what's it like to be on the other side of the camera? I quickly Google a few things, look up Adnan's full name and it finally hits me. Britney's boyfriend is a paparazzi. It turns out he was one of them only weeks ago, until he and Brittany apparently fell in love. Brittany had once said this about the paparazzi. Yeah, it's okay. I would like for them to leave me alone. This shows just how deeply outsiders had now penetrated Miss Spears' life. These photographers that had invaded her private life at every turn, they now had one of their own as her boyfriend. As Adnan and Spears take off, Spears herself holds a camera up and starts filming. Brittany has become fully indoctrinated. This was the last few days of 2007. Weeks later, in 2008, Brittany Spears lost legal control of her life, quite literally. Both her father and a lawyer instituted a conservatorship, a legal maneuver usually used for a guardian to make decisions. All decisions big or small, on behalf of senior citizens or the mentally disabled or mentally ill. Essentially, people who can't be relied on to make decisions that are in their own self-interest. The conservator, in other words, the guardian, oversees everything from the coffee you drink to controlling your bank account. Once under a conservatorship, it's nearly impossible to get out of it. Now, 10 years later, the conservatorship is still in place. And I wonder, what really happened to Britney Spears? My name is Andrew Jenks, and this is What Really Happened, where I challenge accepted narratives around key events involving legendary figures. This week's episode is about Britney Spears, circa 2007, a time in which she made notorious headlines and ended with her losing her own basic rights, or so we think. You may be curious why a podcast that covers topics such as political events ranging from Bridgegate to World War II, or sports legends ranging from Muhammad Ali to Michael Jordan, or historic icons such as Princess Diana, is doing an episode about Britney Spears. First off, this is about much more than just Britney. But also, music is arguably the most popular form of the arts in the history of mankind. And Britney Spears was literally the most well-known musician for a decade and people couldn't stand it. Most all of the greats, Beethoven, Louis Armstrong, Jimi Hendrix, Prince, Kurt Cobain, Bruce Springsteen, Jay-Z, have hardly been questioned about their musical talent. Maybe not some people's taste or it took years for anyone to recognize them, but in their prime and in due time, most will concede their talent. Whereas Britney, critics questioned if she could even sing, if she wrote any of her lyrics, if she was nothing more than a pretty, cute, 17-year-old blonde that could decently dance. The consensus was that she was manufactured by a record label. Yeah, she sold tens of millions of albums and was on the top of the charts around the world, but was she actually an artist? It bothered people. It got under the skin of music aficionados, journalists, and music lovers. And it was bigger than just the questioning of her talent. What bothered most people was that Britney would be unquestionably provocative, but in interviews, she didn't get why people said so. The song, Baby One More Time, was originally called Hit Me Baby One More Time, but the record label took Hit Me out of the title because they wanted to make it clear that it wasn't a song about physical abuse or kinky S&M. Spears said, quote, it means just give me a sign, basically. Britney, who prayed every night, also said, quote, I asked them to change the words to Born to Make You Happy. Oddly enough, in an amazing postscript, nobody really had it right. The Swedish writers who wrote the song had been familiar with the American expression, quote-unquote, hit me back, as in when leaving a voicemail and one saying, casually at the end of the message, hit me back. Regardless, many were annoyed by Britney's overall pristine image during interviews and less pristine image when performing. 
And all of this was amplified because Britney said she would remain a virgin until marriage. This drove people nuts. Due to her lyrics and the risque music videos, there was a surreal, hypersexualized halo that shadowed her every move. Chuck Klosterman said this after interviewing the pop sensation. Quote, Interviewing Britney Spears is like conducting a deposition hearing with Bill Clinton. Regardless of the evidence, she does not waver. When Klosterman asks her about dressing provocatively, she is confused by what he means. When asked about her 2001 song, I'm a Slave for You, in which people are literally licking sweat off her, Chuck reports that she, quote, effortlessly insists that the song has no relationship to sex whatsoever, and that, quote, it's just about being a slave to the music, unquote. Said another reporter, whether by design or not, the queen of America's new teenage is a distinctly modern anomaly, the anonymous superstar. After kissing Madonna during a now infamous VMA Awards performance, Tucker Carlson conducted a bizarre interview on CNN and kept asking her about the kiss. Finally, she responded, I think I'm still clean living. I mean, I don't go home and have orgies or anything like that. She once added, It's honestly up to their parents to explain to them that I'm a performer and that when I'm on stage, that's my time to perform and express myself, but I don't wear those clothes to the supermarket or to a ball game. And then that, you know, little kids, just like when they go into their mom's closet and they dress up in their mom's clothes, it's fine and fun and it's like their time to play at home. Selling pop music in a sexy way is expected but it seemed to become a love-hate relationship when the person selling that sexy pop music always said that she didn't understand why people thought it was sexy. My point, it's impossible to understand how we get to 2007 until we understand this specific type of nuanced relationship many had with Britney. When reading back and watching or listening to interviews, I was constantly impressed at how Britney stuck to the script. In the early days, she put out hit after hit and in interviews stayed on message. For over an hour, I spoke with Sadie Doyle, an author who I could have spoken with all day and recently wrote the incredible book, which I highly recommend, Trainwreck. In her book, Doyle explains the history of the mistreatment of female writers, singers, and artists. On Britney Spears, she tells me, One of Britney's teachers said that she was just an exceptionally obedient young girl. She always believed that if an adult told you something, they had your best interest at heart and it was the right thing to do. That made her really tempting to work with. Certainly if you were a producer, somebody who was that young and that biddable and who would just, you know, do the song that you had in mind, that that's a great, you know, thing to have. In time, it's also become clear that Britney had a strong grasp of her own brand. Britney's record label hired a director for her first video in which she'd go on to wear a Catholic schoolgirl outfit and ultimately cause a worldwide stir. But that wasn't the idea at first. Spears would later on say, quote, they had this really bizarre video idea, this animated Power Ranger-y thing. And I said, this is not right. If you want me to reach four-year-olds, then okay. But if you want me to reach my age group, the 17-year-old Spears nixed it. Britney explained, and the video's director has confirmed this to be true, that she had an idea that she wanted to do something in a schoolroom with a bunch of cute boys and have a lot of dancing. She also thought that they should tie the shirts up to give it a little attitude and, quote, so it wouldn't be so boring and cheesy. Throughout this process, I've been reminded that all of the articles which talk about how dumb Spears is, and there are a lot, are wrong. Spears is much smarter than given credit for. As a teenager, she once said about her music, quote, it's not supposed to be in depth. That doesn't mean I haven't worked really hard. But could Spears have ever known the larger ramifications the song would have, particularly how adults would react, how people would stalk her, that several men attempted breaking into her house, some successfully to do God knows what? No, there's no way. There's a famous photo shoot that was done for Rolling Stone in which Spears lays out on a bed in a black bra and polka dot mini shorts with a Teletubby doll stuffed under her right arm. She was 17 years old. Says Doyle. You know, when you're 17 years old, you don't really have a way to process that. You know, she was being stalked from an early age. She had grown men trying to break into her house 
you know, by the time the Hit Me Baby One More Time single came out, she was really, you know, in a place where I don't think a kid could make the right decision because there's tons of adult attention on you. There's tons of positive attention. Clearly, this is good for your family. And it also can be really confusing and scary and start to infringe on parts of you or take away pieces of you that you weren't even sure were there to take until it started happening. Um, She talked about being freaked out by the sexual attention from grown men. Doyle continues. But that's that was the world she lived in from a pretty young age. I don't think you can reasonably say anyone is asking for that. And if they are, you know, how famous do you have to be before you're asking for it? Perhaps this was the real story, but most had something else in mind. Why could she just not admit it? She wasn't the good girl she was purporting to be. None seemed more unfair than the paparazzi, but others came close. The media, in retrospect, seemed awfully hard. Diane Sawyer, during an interview with Spears, gets agitated, and as it turns out, comes equipped with pictures that she shows Britney in different outfits. Sawyer grills Spears with each photo, asking what exactly Britney was thinking. Before a commercial break, Sawyer ends with a VO, saying, Spears is, quote, like a laboratory experiment in the insulating power of relentless fame. And in a tough interview with Matt Lauer, Spears nearly pleads for privacy. You have to realize that we're people and that we need to, we just need privacy and we need our respect and and those are things that you have to have as a human being and it wasn't just the media either perhaps most disturbing was when fred durst was on the howard stern show and began speaking in graphic detail about his apparent romantic relationship with britney spears including descriptions of spears's pubic hair And here, I must be very clear, in this episode, in ways more powerful than others, I have the advantage of 2020 hindsight. Anyone can look back and point out all of the media and public shortcomings. Maybe you think I'm being too soft on Brittany, we'll see, but I'm doing my best to not just look at all the information, sit on my high horse and say, well, boy, everyone is so awful and I point fingers. I can't judge, I can't say what I would have done, and really, that's not the point. The starting point of this quote-unquote meltdown story begins on February 17th, 2007, and a lot happens quick. On the 17th, she's in rehab and checks out. And then it happens. The next day, she shaves her head. She takes out a bat and crushes her ex-husband, Kevin Federline's car. Two days later, Brittany checks into Promises Malibu Alcohol and Drug Rehab Treatment Facility. The next day, she checks out as her ex-husband, Kevin Federline, asks for an emergency hearing regarding custody of their two sons. The day after that, she checks back in. A little over a month later, on March 30th, she completes rehab and her divorce is finalized in July. However, what many didn't know at the time was that the couple had yet to agree on a custody agreement. A month later in August, Brittany gets into a car accident and flees the scene because she doesn't have a California state driver's license. She's later charged with two counts of a hit and run. But by September, it's time, or so certain people think, for a comeback on arguably the biggest stage for a pop icon, the MTV Video Music Awards. But her performance is considered a flop. ABC News says, quote, Britney Spears tried to do it again. She failed miserably. The New York Daily News, Britney fell as flat as her ill-fitting blonde weave. Simon Cowell added, the problem she has now is that she could have killed her career. But what people thought of Britney would very quickly become the least of her problems. So I've spent many years on the road filming everywhere from the top of Mount Fuji to South Africa to all over America in all sorts of hotels, streets, you name it. When I finally have a few days back at home, there really isn't anything better than sleeping on my great bed. Sleep does make a huge difference. More and more studies show the impact of sleep. And the reason I'm so proud to team and partner with Sleep Number is that this month we're honoring our nation's heroes with savings reserved just for them. Sleep Number beds cost about the same as a normal mattress or a traditional mattress, but they last twice as long and 91% of owners recommend them. And right now, for military members or veterans, you can come in for exclusive savings. It's the semi-annual sale where you'll find clearance savings of $600 on a Sleep Number P6 mattress with Sleep IQ technology. 
You'll only find Sleep Number at any of the 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com to find the store near you and be sure to tell them what really happened sent you. On October 1st, a court orders Brittany to hand over custody of her two sons, then ages two and one, to her ex-husband. And then a few days later, her bodyguard, Tony Barreto, accuses the singer of child abuse, launching an investigation against Britney. Somehow, while all this is going on, Britney's new album, Blackout, debuts at number two on the Billboard charts. But her custody issues continue. She's ordered to not drive with her two sons in the car after she makes an illegal right turn and runs over a police officer's foot while he was trying to help her drive through the paparazzi. And it's only getting worse. She also begins a relationship with Sam Lufty, who apparently becomes her manager. The Daily Beast, a few years later, would go on to report that Mufti was born on August 16, 1974, but, quote, that's about the beginning and end of what we know for sure. His claims of graduating USC seemed untrue. And according to the LA Times, quote, accusations in at least three prior orders range from obscene messages following a business deal to a neighbor who said he was hounded incessantly and threatened with bodily harm. It's finally 2008, but four days into the new year, Spears, who had visitation rights with her two sons and was scheduled to give her kids back to her ex-husband, instead locks herself in a room with one of her children while the other sat in a car. Police were called and ambulances arrived as well. Spears was tied to a gurney and rushed to a hospital. According to police, Spears appeared to be under the influence of an unknown substance. She went under an evaluation known as the 5150 hold, which according to the medical code is when any person as a result of mental disorder is a danger to others or to himself or herself or gravely disabled. On January 5th, and I can't believe this is where the story goes, but on January 5th, insert Dr. Phil. He gets a call from Brittany's worried mother. Dr. Phil goes and sees Brittany. There are conflicting reports as to what happens, but at most, Dr. Phil briefly sees Spears. Afterwards, he sends out a statement, which reads, quote, My meeting with Brittany and some of her family members this morning in her room at Cedars leaves me convinced more than ever that she is in dire need of both medical and psychological intervention, unquote. A few days later, he would go on entertainment tonight. You can make this okay, he has the gall to say. Your family loves you. You may not always agree with what they say, with what they do, but they've loved you when you weren't lovable. And that's not it. He continues for a bit. Turn to the people that love you and listen. You have two children and you are the one in this world to protect them. There is no sacrifice that your mother Lynn won't make for you. And there is no sacrifice that your father won't make. They are the people that want nothing from you and everything for you. So does Dr. Phil really have the arrogance to think that Brittany in the hospital will see this while watching Entertainment Tonight and think, well, geez, Dr. Phil is right, right here on TV. That makes sense. I invited Dr. Phil on our show, but we didn't hear back, which to be clear, I think is probably because he's busy and this podcast isn't on his radar, at least not yet. Maybe down the road, and I'm more than open to understanding his perspective, I sincerely hope he joins us. I'm going to avoid adjectives, metaphors, and feelings and try my best here to stick to the facts. Spears' family spokesperson goes on the Today Show, upset at Dr. Phil. Quote, what's wrong with Dr. Phil's statement is he made a statement. She then adds, This is just another example of trust really being betrayed. I felt that was inappropriate for him to even be self-serving in bringing something like that up. And how does Dr. Phil go about apologizing? I certainly do not apologize for trying to help this family or this girl in trouble. He added, If I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't say a word. Not only does he not apologize, but he actually specifically says he won't apologize only that he'd, quote, probably do things differently. But legally, I knew he was in trouble. You can't see a patient and then say something, much less put out a public statement. Doctor-patient confidentiality is perhaps the most important rule in a medical practice. However, I was surprised. I didn't see anything about Dr. Phil getting in any kind of trouble. Because as it turns out, he's not even a doctor. He used to be a doctor in Texas, but was no longer. In fact, if anything, it seems like his practice had gotten in trouble for hiring a former patient. 
And then I realized it wasn't just Dr. Phil, but other doctors happily, eagerly diagnosing Brittany on national TV. After Brittany's VMA performance, Dr. Drew, and he is a real doctor it seems, appears on HLN to both talk about Brittany and promote his new show. The most accurate part of the interview seems to be his preface, quote, by the way, we are speculating. I don't know Brittany and we are really responding to somebody else's opinion on a blog, unquote. Now, I don't know Dr. Drew. I've never met Dr. Drew and I'm not trying to be cutesy. I say sincerely, he could be a really nice guy, but who in their right mind begins a diagnosis of a real person by starting with, they are speculating about someone they don't know and from a blog. More disheartening, Dr. Drew wasn't on some random website responding to questions. He was on HLN. He was on CNN's sister network. So regardless of saying he's in no position to give an opinion, he does so. Quote, she has chronic psychiatric disorders that are going to need management probably her entire life, including probably medication. And the fact is medication that treats, as you have heard that I have heard that maybe bipolar is one of the conditions here, that's a lifelong condition. And if that is indeed the case, the medication they use for that can make people look a little robotic and a little stiffer sometimes, unquote. He then goes on to say, as if he's giving her some sort of a break, that just because people like her have a condition doesn't mean they shouldn't be working. Oftentimes, when challenged, you'll hear a person who goes on TV to give an opinion about something in which they have no business talking about respond with, well, they wanted a doctor to speak about this, and if it wasn't me, it was just going to be someone else. Well, there are doctors that could have said something else. Dr. Joanna Jarko, a fellow at the National Institute of Mental Health, said in an interview, quote, we once thought that the brain didn't change that much after earlier childhood. But what we've seen is that the brain continues to undergo really profound changes up until your early 20s. It's still quite malleable. So being exposed to different influences in your social environment can really have a profound impact on the way that your brain continues to develop. Other research shows that the corpus callosum, the mechanism used for the two sides of the brain to communicate, is growing right into your mid-20s. I spoke with Dr. Risa Ravitz, founder of City Neurology. She said, The pruning, the sort of connections that happen with neurons, they happen with patterned repetitive behavior. They get stronger as they're used more, almost like a muscle. Dr. Ravitz continued, That part of the brain is what they're finding has more of these stronger connections and those areas are working faster, more efficiently, and sending signals that allow those sort of bigger decisions, okay? There's connections into the emotional parts of the brain and long-term planning and so forth. Those connections are getting a lot stronger. And it's a major part of development, major, major. Essentially, the teen years remain the years in which our brains change the most. But the brain is changing for much longer than previously realized. And if the corpus callosum isn't sexy enough for TV, fine. I can meet you in the middle. For Dr. Phil or Dr. Drew, perhaps talk about the infamous 27 Club, a term coined by Kurt Cobain's mom and by and large a media construct, but at least that would allow viewers to see this in some sort of larger context. This quote-unquote club includes Amy Winehouse, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, and Jim Morrison. In fact, one writer compiled a list of 3,463 people who between 1908 and 2012, having achieved notoriety in a popular music genre, died at 27 years old. Maybe there's a reason so many 27-year-olds, which Britney was only a few months away from turning, have died. A combination of fame, age, media scrutiny, and simply being an artist has proven lethal time and time again. TV doctors had plenty of material to work with. But to lay blame just on Dr. Phil wouldn't be fair, it'd be way too easy. The media at large seemed to indulge in this young woman's takedown. At times, Britney seemed to rise above it. People say what they want and, you know, do what they do. And, you know, it's sad, you know, how people, how people, how cruel our world can be. But at the end of the day, like I said, you know, you just got to know in your heart that, you know, you're doing the best that you can. And, you know, that's basically it. There was a Rolling Stone cover story about Britney with the headline, The American Tragedy. I had a strong reaction to it and believe it lacked really any empathy, but I'd encourage anyone interested to go online and read it as it's available, simple Google search and judge for yourself. Vanessa Gregoriadis, the author of the article, was kind enough to join me on the podcast. And knowing I would say my issues with the article, I assumed it was best to be honest and see if she had regrets or feelings on how the coverage may be different today. 
When I read it, I had to read it uh, twice um, in the last couple of weeks. So good. <laughs> just joking. Um, it's long. No, yeah. I mean, for for me, it it felt like it lacked any sense of empathy towards her. I agree. I agree. And uh-huh. people really were angry about that. Oh, um, interesting. Yes. I hear from um, all sorts of um, youngsters who felt that I was not, you know, empathetic towards her. But, mm-hmm. you know, you have and to realize sorry, I was define, looking at her. Define what you mean yeah. by youngsters? Well, I'm specifically talking about people who are coming up in journalism school right now, like okay. 20-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that... You know, look, I, I mean, that's not my forte. Um, a, B, uh, I was looking at her as, you know, a cultural breakdown and not necessarily as an individual. There's no interview with Brittany in this story. It's a true right around. I tried to stick to my basic question. By way of context, you'll hear Vanessa mention one line in which she describes Brittany as a, quote, inbred swamp thing. Is there anything that you feel like you would do differently now, 10 years later? Well, I do feel that I could have been more um, open to talking about her um, as having some sort of mental disorder versus saying like that she is an allegorical figure in the fall of American culture um, and, you know, pressing on the kind of things that I was saying about her being like an inbred swamp thing or who like just doesn't just wants everybody to know that like she may have been a virgin deflowered for our amusement, but like now is the time that she's going to like take control of the wheel. Vanessa would go on to say that these days, Brittany would have more control of her own narrative. Celebrities are able to put their own stories out there with whatever it is that they want people to see. What has changed most recently is that public figures have a chance at creating their own narrative. Lady Gaga, Demi Lovato, and other female stars are well-respected for their willingness to share their own hardships with mental health on social media. Imagine if Britney had Twitter 10 years ago. Would she have felt less forced into writing this fine line of good girl from the South juxtaposed to sexy, controversial singer and just be, well, Britney? Plenty of pop stars seem to be more themselves these days. BuzzFeed recently pointed out that Rihanna and Lord are good examples, but it's easy to think that would have been the case with Britney. Social media makes us feel closer to celebrities, but that doesn't necessarily mean we actually are. Spears' treatment by the media is, unfortunately, nothing all that new. I asked Sadie Doyle, the author of Trainwreck, simply, what is a train wreck as defined in her book? The sort of bite-sized answer, and it's hard to give because I had to like write a whole book to come up with a definition, but... Um, The bite-sized answer is that a train wreck is a woman who is turned into a spectacle, who has her narrative taken away from her because she's either sexually too much, emotionally too much, or preferably both at once. You know, there's there's Whitney Houston and there's Amy Winehouse, and before that there was Courtney Love, and before that there was maybe, what, who was super high all the time? I know Marilyn Monroe was, Mm -hmm. um, or Judy Garland. Um, We keep coming up with stories of the good little girl who, you know, became terrible the moment she grew up. You know, that was Drew Barrymore, and then it was Britney Spears, and then it was Miley Cyrus. Um, We keep coming up with examples of a woman who was beautiful, but has aged and become ugly and unloved. Doyle says in her book, we all understand that genius and madness are connected. At least we do when the genius is male. She continues, Madness makes one gender riskier and braver. It makes the other less compliant and harder to deal with. I asked Doyle about men who are in the midst of downfalls. Like Chris Brown had to get caught beating his girlfriend within an inch of her life before he even became controversial. And there are still people who love him. There are still, you know... Young girls loved him at the time, and probably some of them have grown up, you know, like me into women who maintain a soft spot for him. We well, can... I, I may, I'm not, uh, I'm not too in 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 the know, but from my understanding, Chris Brown is. It's not like he's in hiding. He's, no, if anything, quite he's... the. I mean, he's beloved. He's still a superstar. He still has like a thriving career. In her book, Doyle talks about how other men have to do quite a bit for the press to even care. 
Mel Gibson terrorized his girlfriend and said a litany of offensive things over the years. Steven Tyler once adopted a 16-year-old girl to have sex with. Justin Bieber was videotaped using the N-word. Does this mean one mistake should end their careers? That's not the point, says Doyle. It's that some people seem to hate actors like Kristen Stewart, Anne Hathaway, or Katherine Heigl because they seem arrogant, appear unpleasant, or believe that they wouldn't be easy to work with. When one woman described the trauma she felt after a sex video was released without her permission, Pierce Morgan's follow-up question was, quote, are you good in bed? I guess it's a rhetorical question because I watched the video this morning for research purposes, and the answer is clearly affirmative. Pierce once also said this about Britney, quote, she still has ability. I feel sorry for her. She needs someone like me to take charge of her career. I'd sort out Britney in a heartbeat. Unlike Pierce and so many others, there is one male that seemed to have a genuine interest, albeit from afar, in sticking up for Britney Spears. Like Britney, he has dealt with the bizarre life as a famous person. And like Britney, he was also described as a person that, quote, went crazy. While Spears is arguably the pop star of her generation, Dave Chappelle is arguably the comedian of his generation. Like Britney, he also had what the media dubbed a breakdown. I'm not trying to directly compare them here with these breakdown terms, as they're bogus, but really because the way in which they handle fame. Chappelle is also about 10 years older. During production of the third season of his hit show, Chappelle Show, Dave left. At first, Comedy Central said that Chappelle had the flu, which Dave later said wasn't true, and that stress had caused him to leave. But then reports came, starting with the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly, that Chappelle was in a psychiatric facility in South Africa. Spears lost her mind by shaving her head and bashing a car. Dave lost his mind by checking into a psych ward in Africa. Headlines were similar. Both had gone crazy, had a meltdown, were out of their minds. For Dave, it got to the point where he allowed a Time magazine writer to come out to Africa and meet with him for an hour so the world would know he wasn't losing his mind. He was taking time off and opted for South Africa, where he wouldn't be as recognized. Just as I had with Britney, I went on YouTube to see how Dave dealt with the paparazzi. Around 2009, when leaving the Ivy, a Los Angeles hotspot restaurant, Dave lights a cigarette when the paparazzi suddenly appear and surround him. He gives that look like he just ran into an ex on the sidewalk and has to pretend to be nice, but really wishes he had waited. It seems like to allow others at the restaurant to eat in peace, Dave walks away from the restaurant. Rather than say something like, leave me alone, he jabs, so who are you guys hoping to really see here? Dave isn't dumb. He knows the Ivy is a place to be seen, but he does appear surprised by all of the commotion. This is confirmed when he asks if word came in that a person like Jessica Alba was a block away, would the photographers all go run off? They all respond with, yeah, sorry, Dave, we'd have to go. But for now, it's just Chappelle. And one of the first questions asked to Dave is, what advice would you give Britney Spears? It's an easy layup for Dave to say something most of us, probably including me, would find funny. But Dave says without hesitation, which is hard to hear with all the photos clicking, something like, Come on, man, why do you have to bust the girl like that? He leans back with genuine empathy. Quickly, another paparazzi yells, Dave, what are you doing for the holidays? And Dave immediately responds with, well, I guess I won't need Christmas pictures, will I? Everyone laughs. He then saves a photographer from running into a tree, as most of them are walking backwards to capture Dave walking forward. Dave then asks the dozen or so photographers if anyone has a business card. I'm not totally sure why, but he seems sincere and gets one. He then asks if they could, at the very least, walk down a side street because it's embarrassing for all this commotion to be going on down a main road. All of the above happens in the one minute since Dave left the restaurant for that cigarette. One minute, and Dave has saved a paparazzi from crashing and breaking an expensive camera, gotten a business card, cracked a few jokes, stood up for Spears, and casually changed the location of where this madness will ensue. Only a minute later, Dave now has a dozen or so of the paparazzi involved in a Q&A, but he's flipped the traditional script. He's asking them questions. At least one of the paparazzi has even put his camera down and is now in a real conversation with Dave. Chappelle asks about their methodology, salaries, perceptions of their own job, why people are searching crude Britney Spears pictures while America is at war. And then at one point, despite being surrounded by cameras, Dave somehow notices a lone protester down the street holding up a sign that is in support of the Writers Guild. 
Hey, good for you, man, Dave says. The cameras get a few shots of the lone man and then look back at Dave. He continues asking questions. Unlike the Britney video, it seems like everyone is having a good time. And then the obvious dawns on me, and I missed it probably because I'm a guy. This really is just a bunch of dudes hanging out. Since most of the paparazzi are males, there's an obvious camaraderie, and certainly more empathy. It's not so much that Dave Chappelle is really cool, it's that he's a dude. Although, full disclaimer, he is a really cool dude. Throughout Britney's time as a mother, people have also criticized her parenting, to which she's had to respond. I've definitely wept just with the world, you know, how judgmental they are, but I know what kind of mom I am. Dave also defends Spears in a GQ article from 2014. Quote, I mean, look at Britney Spears like having a kid. She's a new mom and I don't know if you have kids or not, but it's a very sensitive time in a woman's life when they're a new mom. And the way the media was criticizing her mothering, I was like, that shit is ice cold. Because even if you're super strong, that shit will fuck with you. Whereas if you were like, Dave Chappelle's a bad father, I'd be like, so what? By and large, men have it easier than women. And it's no different when you're famous. Doyle adds, It has levels of soap opera to it. It has levels almost of mythology to it because we keep putting the same people or we keep putting different people into the same archetypes. As Doyle points out, the soap opera for Spears is obviously very real. She is now in her 10th year of being under a conservatorship. A conservatorship is when a court appoints an adult to take care of another adult. It's known in some states as a guardianship. It's primarily designed to protect people who are either one, mentally disabled, two, extremely sick, or three, senior citizens. There are also two types of conservatorships, financial and personal. Brittany has been appointed both. Her personal conservatorship is run by her father, Jamie Spears. This includes anything from where to vacation to monitoring the sort of food you buy. And then there is her estate conservatorship or financial conservatorship, which is also run by her father, in addition to a lawyer, Andrew Wallet. New York Times journalist Joe Cossarelli points out that at first, Spears is certainly hesitant, if not against this conservatorship. In fact, she may have tried to not even allow it in the first place. Says Cossarelli, One of those guys that, that we talked to, you know, he said Brittany wanted to oppose the conservatorship. Um, and... And then ultimately, a judge decided she was not of sound mind to be able to hire her own counsel. Um, and so the lawyer, you know, listened to, to what the judge said and sort of went away. But his his view of it was that while she was sort of reticent to go along with her dad being in full control of her life, she knew she had lost custody of her children. And that was the most important thing to her. Uh, and she knew that the best way that to, to be able to see her kids and to possibly regain some sort of custody was to go along with, with this and, and get her life in order. And, you know, everyone we talked to from uh, ex-boyfriends to lawyers and, you know, basically any associate would say her kids were the most important thing to her. I watched a 2008 MTV documentary in which Spears opens up as her conservatorship has just begun. Joe brings this up in our conversation as well. This MTV documentary in 2008 that was uh, sort of gearing her up for a comeback, and it was it was strangely candid. I think it was the only, really, the only time that, she, that in public that she's talked about the conservatorship. And yeah, we quote her saying, "I think it's too in control. Uh, yeah. If I wasn't under the restraints I'm under, I'd feel so liberated." She said, "There's no excitement. There's no passion." And then she this she said this thing, which was you know re really pretty poignant and. Uh, foreshadowed, you know, the decade since where she's remained under these controls. And she said, you know, even when you go to jail, you know, there's a time when you're going to get out. But in this situation, it's never ending. The fog of this conservatorship is very real. For every positive, there seems to be a negative and vice versa. Joe continues. You know, and she seems stable. She is, seems happy with her kids. She, you know, she's dated. She, she seems to be in generally good spirit, at least from what they present to the world. Um, at the same time, that success sort of undercuts the need for the conservatorship because a conservatorship is supposed to be for people who can't care for themselves. Uh, you know, basically, it's typically for people 
older than 70, you know, people who are on their deathbeds and they need someone to, to feed them and to make sure they take their medication and all that, you know. Since late 2013, Brittany has had a residency show at the Axis Auditorium in Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. She has played about 50 times per year, and as of February 2017, the show has grossed over $121 million, with over 980,000 attendees, making it one of the most successful residency shows in Las Vegas history. Says Costarelli. So it's, it's a little bit at odds when they're presenting her as this powerhouse on stage and, you know, the queen of her empire and all of that. And then in the court documents, they're saying she's too mentally fragile to be able to buy a coffee without logging it with the court. You know what I mean? Joe's article, which he wrote with reporter Serge F. Kovaleski, is careful not to take an opinion on the conservatorship and instead sticks to what they discover. It's titled, Is Britney Spears Ready to Stand on Her Own and Easy to Find Online? Vanessa Gregoriadis was candid in her opinions on the conservatorship. You do realize there's a conservatorship to this day. Britney Spears does not control her own money, right? Yeah, no, I absolutely do. I, I, I think. I mean, uh, let's not let's not pretend she's not in Vegas because they're trying to control her. So get, explain that if you don't well, mind. Well, I mean, she's in Vegas because she can't travel. You know, she's in Vegas because she needs to like sing and dance to make money for the people who are controlling her. And how so, do you know? You know how do you know that? Well, I mean, I you know I don't really know anything. I'm just a journalist. Like, but whoa, 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 whoa! What, what you can't, you can't, but you, <laughs> you, you can't say you can't you can't throw out something as if it's a fact and then say I don't. I can't tell if you're kidding. Are you, is that a joke? No, I'm not. I'm not kidding at all. But I mean, I look. I can I can throw in some allegedly if you want. Uh, but you, you didn't know, say that. I, you're I going from think... a fact to saying I'm just a. Ju- I'm confused. I, 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 it is a fact that she has a conservatorship to this time. That's to not. This yeah, well, it is a fact. That is a fact, but that's not what you said at first. People, most of the people who perform in Vegas perform in Vegas now not necessarily yeah. because they're able to go on the road. They go there because that's you know generally the place where you go if if you need to chill out. There are lots of different opinions on a conservatorship. On one hand, it seems like a reasonable way to make sure that. Malicious people don't infiltrate the life of a person who has mental health issues. On the other hand, once you're under conservatorship, it's basically impossible to get out of it. You're stuck. Back to my conversation with Susan Doyle. Like, my worry is, if I have a a mental health condition and I have a father who knows how to manipulate the law in good ways or bad ways... How are conservatorships not possible to use on on anyone, much less just Britney Spears? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to submit proof that the person has a really debilitating illness. And maybe at one point she did have a diagnosis that was severe. I mean, we don't know that. That's her medical record. And that, you know, we won't know that without her consent or more appropriately her father's consent. Um so they would not have handed that down if they didn't believe that she was sick at one point. The problem is that she does not seem to be completely cognitively disabled. And she certainly is able to work. And by working, she is able to make lots and lots of money for the holders of the conservatorship, not for herself. That doesn't go to her anymore. Um, when you say it doesn't go to her... I mean that, you know, she's she's legally not a grown up. She doesn't get that money. She doesn't have that access to her own bank account. Um, it goes to her guardian. Scary. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really scary. So what kind of control Brittany actually has remains unknown. In the last year, Spears has also gone on tour in Asia, selling out stadiums around the continent. In fact, Israel announced that it would reschedule its July primary election to avoid conflict with Spears' sold-out Tel Aviv concert, citing traffic and security concerns. Her personal life? Brittany has partial custody of her kids, and she occasionally posts photos or videos of the three of them together on social media. In the end, this story has more depth and layers than I, being clearly naive when starting this journey, could have ever imagined. There are at least five moving parts. One... We're now more acutely aware of mental health conditions. So how does the media treat people with mental health issues? Two, 
In a country that prides itself on freedom, how can we better understand conservatorships? Three, a world in which fame is becoming more celebrated, more rewarded, and more powerful, how do we treat celebrities? Four, how can we best understand people that we think are far more mature than they really are while still in their early 20s? And last, this all speaks to who we celebrate as success stories in our culture. Time and time again, the media would often tell Britney how successful she was. But how do they know that? What are their metrics of success? Why don't we ever look at a grade school teacher and say, you know how successful that person is? I heard she or he is teaching fourth grade and the students are loving it, really learning this year. Apparently their math skills are through the roof. But instead, success usually means money and add some fame and you're really cooking. Obviously I'm being naive, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It doesn't mean that we can't take steps in making this a reality. Britney Spears was never given a chance, but despite it all, she's performing in Vegas. She seems to be successfully co-parenting her two lovely kids, but I'll stop there because if there's one conclusion I've come to, it's that maybe, maybe it was never really my place to even ask in the first place what really happened. So as always, I look forward to getting your feedback and insight. You can leave a message by calling us at 347-674-6980. That's 347-674-6980. Or you can go to our website, jenkspod.com. That's jenkspod.com. Or you can always follow me on Twitter at Andrew Jenks. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Seven Bucks Productions in association with Cadence 13 Studios. Next week's episode, Michael Jordan is perhaps the greatest athlete ever, but what he did off the court was equally astonishing. He revolutionized American sports through his marketing prowess and Air Jordan brand. But off the court, there remains a lingering question as to why he retired in 1993. Did he have gambling debts? Did the NBA secretly suspend him? Did he really want to play baseball? I speak with Sam Smith, Bob Ryan, Jeff Van Gundy, and other experts so we get to know Jordan the man and why he really retired. That's next week on What Really Happened.